Um, hey, uh, I'm just gonna jump right in here since um, I sent you guys the front and back of this book. Like, you know what's happening here. Uh, this is chapter one of Undrowned. Um, chapter one is called Listen. I, I'm just realizing I'm still sick, so like, I'll see how well this goes with my voice. <laughs> How can we listen across species, across extinction, across harm? How does echolocation, the practice many marine mammals use to navigate the world through bouncing sounds, change our understandings of vision and visionary action? Is social media already a technology of bounce, of throwing something out there and seeing what comes back? This is where we start our trans-species communion. Communion, sorry. Opening a space to uplift the practice of listening even more than the practices of showing and proving and speaking up. Listening is not only about the normative ability to hear, it is a transformative and revolutionary resource that requires quieting down and tuning in. Once upon a time, there was a giant sea mammal who weighed up to 23 tons, swimming in the Bering Sea. In 1741, a German naturalist discovered Hydrodamalis gigas, swimming large in lux, at least three times bigger than the contemporary manatee. Within 27 years, the entire species was, exti was extinct, killed on thousands of European voyages for fur and sealskin. So she knows what we know. It is dangerous to be discovered. 27 years. Who else could only tolerate 27 years among Western humans? Jimi Hendrix, Jean-Michel Jean Basquiat, even Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain. 27 years is a short time. How do we mourn and survive the violence of being known? How does capitalism so quickly destroy what took billions of years to evolve? What do we know about this subungulate sub ant? Oh my goodness. What do we know about this subungulate mammal related to elephants and aardvarks? She had blubber and was hunted for it. They say she couldn't sing. The only sound was her breathing, but she could hear for miles and miles and miles. What a loss for listening. How can we honor it, the archive of your breathing? Some say your death was only incidental. You were so conveniently located on the favorite path of sealers and fur traders between Russia and North America. Those 27 years were like a gold rush, fueled by the desires of fashionable Europeans for fur hats and coats. A fashion trend sparked by colonizing North America, a supposedly endless supply of fur. They were on their way to get seal skin and fur. They would kill you and eat you during the journey there. Does that make anyone feel better? Keep anyone warm? That your extinction, the first known extinction of a marine mammal caused by humans, was collateral in the pursuit of other deaths? Oh, you rough mermaid, what are you teaching us about breath? Oh, massive vegetarian, what do we know now that our listening is that much smaller? I think you are much more than evidence of the deadliness of a world in which skin is for sale at a premium. I think you are more than another testament of the stark implications of European voyaging, more than an indictment of the rush, more than the folly of a dominant way of living that changes the planet quickly, thoughtlessly, forever, more than the deadliness of an insatiable hunger born of chasing things other than sustenance. That hunger outlived you. I feel it chasing me. T I feel it chasing me too. What can I do to honor you now that it is too late? I would honor you with the roughness of my skin, the thickness of my boundaries, the warmth of my own fat. I would honor you with my quiet and my breathing, my listening further and further out and in. I would, offer, I would honor you with the slowness of my movement, contemplative and graceful. I would try to be like you, even though they say it's out of fashion. I will remember you, not by the name written in the possessive of the one they say discovered you after generations of indigenous relationship. I will say... 
Once upon a time, there was a huge and quiet swimmer, a plant-based, rough-skinned listener, a fat and graceful mammal. And then I will be quiet so I can hear you breathing. And then I will be breathing, and you'll remind me, do not rush, and the time in me will hush, and then we will be listening for real. In the past 20 years, bioacoustic scientists have spent a lot of time listening to different populations of Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins. These dolphins, like most dolphins, know something about intentional sound, about when to use high frequencies to find out where they are, and when to use low frequencies to reach you across this increasing ambient noise. Echolocation and communication overlap, but they also diverge. Sometimes the sounds I make are about measuring my surroundings. Sometimes there is something I need to tell you. Usually it's both. Dolphins use the fat in their foreheads to modulate their bisonar hearing, uh, listening, which sounds about as elegant as what I do with you. Sometimes I feel like I'm communicating with you underwater. The impact of what I say outlives what I learned by saying it. And the ambient noise grows louder, and the ocean is heating up, and I need you to know where the bottom is, that what will feed us, how close are the sharks. Sometimes my best guess echoes back to me like a slap in the face, and I remember I know nothing. This fat forehead needs you, and all your guesses too, in this dynamic space. Which is to say, I am humbly listening, and I am learning to take responsibility for my frequencies. I can lower them to reach you. I can reflect before I speak out. Echolocation is not the same as mind reading. Some of this magic is just the complexity of being a mammal alive in sound. I can hear what I cannot yet see. I can make a whole world of resonance, and live in it, swim through it, reflecting you. Whistle, click, if you can feel that I am here. They say river dolphins don't leap as much as dolphins in the ocean. Because of turbid flows of rushing water, they do not trust their eyes. Their eyes grow small. Echolocation becomes crucial. Their listening becomes more nuanced. They become experts of shape and shape themselves to become narrow, reaching forward like the river. River dolphins all over the world, in the Ganges and Amazon rivers, for example, are not close genetic relatives, but they are remarkably physically similar. They have grown common forms due to their common circumstances. Have you grown that way, riverine? Riverine? In a context that moves so quickly that looking at it tells you almost nothing. Are you evolving a deeper way of listening where you are? Could we become students of shape precise enough to move with the grace and flexibility our circumstance requires, even though your river is not my river? I'm amazed by how much listening can do, how quickly it becomes less important to be seen, to leap, to show, and those who study river dolphins know it too. Don't bother looking for these teachers who will rarely jump or splash. You have to listen for them, try to hear them breathe. I breathe in shape. I shape my days while land contours me at two sides. I shape my breath to wind through winding paths ahead. I shape my head to fit the purpose of my breath. My breath is prayer, the shape of life, evolving name. All I can see is just the blur that says life moves. I stay in prayer and reach to listen for your breath. There's a dolphin found only on the shores of Aotearoa that the Maori sometimes call Tupupu which also means to rise up, to toss and turn, to be seriously ill. Where it is, Maori meteorologists have been studying these dolphins for centuries to gain insights about the weather, what we might have to endure and how soon. And should we go out to sea or stay in? And will the sky fall on us yet? And will, where will the wind take us? Western scientists have classified the leaping of Tupupu in three ways. Horizontal, vertical, and noisy. Noisy means you land on your side, on your back, on your belly. You rise up, toss and turn, and for a moment, when you fall, the ocean is a drum. And someone is listening, because how you move, how you land, is a sign of the weather to come. 
and you rise up, and you fall loudly, and you toss and turn. And something about this climate makes you sick, doesn't it? I'm listening to. Because of what you, because of what you do and its direction. How you fall in the sound. Where you go and how quickly. These tell me something about what is coming in a sky I can't see yet. And I love you for all your splashing. What you did with your body, how you made it a drum. And I say your play and your thrash are prophetic. And I say your name is a verb, a demand. And I offer my days to your urgent instruction. The weather is changing. Yes, I understand. Chapter 2. Breathe. Breath is a practice of presence. One of the physical characteristics that unites us with marine mammals is that they process air in a way similar to us. Though they spend most, of, most or all of their time in water, they do not have gills. We too, on land, are often navigating contexts that seem impossible for us to breathe in, and yet we must. The adaptations that marine mammals have made in relationship to breathing are some of the most relevant for us to observe, not only in relationship to our survival in an atmosphere we've polluted on a planet where we are causing the ocean to rise, but also in relationship to our intentional living, our mindful relation to each other. With meditations on the different ways that narwhal, beluga, and bowhead whales breathe in the Arctic, the ways baby seals learn how to redefine breath in infancy, the relationship between the endangered North Atlantic right whale and my Shinnecock and, and enslaved ancestors, and even a surprise visit by a black tip reef, black tip reek, oh my goodness, <laughs> I need to start this, off, this paragraph over, hold on a second. With meditations on the different ways that narwhal, beluga, and bowhead whales breathe in the Arctic, the ways baby seals learn to redefine breath in infancy, the relationship between the endangered North Atlantic right whale and my Shinnecock and enslaved ancestors, and even a surprise visit by a black tip reef shark, this section offers us opportunities to look at what blocks our breathing and the stakes of a society that puts profit over breath. May our breathing open up to the possibility of peace. There is more than one way to breathe in the Arctic. Ask the narwhal, beluga, and bowhead whales. Beluga shapeshifts evolve to look like ice itself and congregates in the shallow estuaries, singing. Narwhal stays in deeper water, nearer to pack ice, grows a horn to break through, changes color over its life. Needs no other teeth, just the one. Bowhead says bigger is better and moves alone, strong enough to break ice with a bare skull, old enough to remember before all of this, never stops growing. And you? Maybe it's time to remember that there is more than one way to breathe in icy depths or summer heat. To thank your ancestors for how you have evolved in the presence of polar bears, harpoons, and other threats. To think on what you want to shift, how you want to grow, what you need to remember. And me, it was always you I loved, not your elegant strategy. I will love you still if, if you now outgrow it. I will love you more whether time moves forward or backwards, whether ice melts or water freezes back. Whether your next move is protection, breakthrough, shift, or any combination, there are at least three ways to love you. As you were, as you are, and as you will be. I love you. That means I choose all three. The baby Waddell Seal has not grown into her flippers. She's awkward. She does not want to swim. She does not know she can breathe underwater. No one has told her about the great oxygenating capacity of her blood. She doesn't know that the milk her mother gives her is some of the fat richest milk in the world. Southernmost mammal on the planet, she doesn't know the depths of which she's capable, but her mother does. The mother Waddell seal will push her baby into the water against her will. She will force her child's head into the water while the baby coughs and sputters and struggles and squirms. She is new here. She does not know that she can breathe underwater. Until she does, and then everything changes. By the time weaning is over, she will be able to dive 2,500 feet below the water. Stay there for an hour if she wants to. Find a tiny hole she made for air after swimming 12 kilometers away. 
move gracefully between frozen and liquid worlds, but she doesn't know. Am I the only one here in a lesson, a coughing, sputtering thrash, a struggle to stay who I thought I was, ignorant to what evolution was already written inside me? I feel out of depth, but really, how would I know? The tough love of the Waddell Seal mother teaches a lesson about the difference between what is cute and what is necessary, what has been and what could be, and I'm grateful for all of my mothers, biological and chosen and ancestral, mammal and otherwise, like the copperhead snake who greeted me last night, who would shock me into knowing my capacity, trust my lungs more than I thought I could, to breathe in ways I haven't breathed before, to learn my blood in ways I didn't know it. As the Waddell Seal grows, she will shed her fur, become sleek, She'll feel completely at home in the ocean she avoided. She will see and feel things no other mammal has felt. But right now, she is coughing and spitting and clinging to what she has known. She feels like she is drowning, but she's just meeting herself again for the first time. Love to all my parents and the push for, of the universe for laughing at me. Thank you to those of you who have pushed through portals already, even out of this life. We can move between worlds. Thank you for those of you living and evolving. The vulnerability of your newness is an example to us all. Thank you to those who hold me accountable, who expect me to become who I need to become. I uh, thank you for ignoring the lies I tell myself about myself. Even in my resistance, I'm grateful for you all, for the love you're teaching me, deep, black, and full, for the nurturance, push, and example, what you learned by facing your own death, what you learned in your drowning is my breath. The second I set foot on the beach at Bridgehampton, a whale surfaced and exhaled. From where I stood, an occupied sacred or, sorry, from where I stood on occupied sacred Shinnecock land, I couldn't see whether it was a fin whale or a humpback whale, but in my heart I thought maybe, just maybe, it was a North Atlantic right whale. The right whale, the rarest whale in the ocean, hunted nearly into extinction to literally fuel the colonial project. Blubber and light. Used to be a right whale could breathe for a century. Now that never happens. They rarely live five years without scars from boat propellers, rope wounds from tangled commerce. And it's not necessary. Boats could shift or slow their paths quite easily. You know what is necessary? Breath. There's more so than ours, truth be told. Yesterday, I learned that the breathing of whales is as crucial to our own breathing and the carbon cycle of the planet as are the forests of the world. Researchers say that if whales returned to their pre-commercial whaling numbers, their gigantic breathing would store as much as 110,000 hectares of forest. Or a forest... As much carbon as 110,000 hectares of forest, or a forest the size of Rocky Mountain National Park. The Shinnecock, now and since forever, including some of my ancestors, are in sacred relationship with the North Atlantic right whale, a listening that spans centuries. Once the beaching of a right whale was an offering to the whole community, nourishment and light, shelter and warmth. But that day on the shoreline, the poet Kathy Engel told me that she'd never seen a whale in all her 60 years of growing up at that beach until just this summer. Did you call them with your writing? She asked me online. Yes, I've been calling you forever, with my blood and with my breathing. I remember what you gave us, which is everything. Light, home, and each other. Love, warmth, and ourselves. If I breathe, I sing your name. I can only breathe because of you. Do you have a century more of breath? And if not, what do I have? Home is light, but loss is heavy. And I cannot live without you. Why would I want to live without you? Steward of centuries, transformer of air, I ever await your message and assignment. In debt and gratitude, in trust and tide. I see you. I hear you. I know. I dedicate my breathing to the depth you taught. Our teaching. You're welcome. This is what the young black tip reef shark who came right up to the shore and accompanied me on the rest of my walk said. What are you doing here? I asked in return. Everyone knows I'm writing about marine mammals, not sharks. And is this even part of your range? She took a deep breath under the water. 
I was jealous. Maybe I do need gills, I thought, but I didn't say. First of all, she said, that's no way to greet a requiem shark. Do you know who my cousins are? Good point. Tiger shark and them, some of the baddest. But by how she rolled her eyes, I could tell she wasn't exactly making a threat. Was I making the wrong assumption? Much respect, I said at last. What was that? The surf is loud. You know my ears are embedded. Much respect, I repeated. Much respect, shark of the live birth who breathes underwater, born whole in yourself in the color of sand, guardian of the reef with your beautiful black edges, bre breaching brown genius, brave even among sharks. That you show yourself ever is a gift to the sky. That you showed yourself to me is more than can be expected. I am at your service. I am in your debt. What can I offer? Okay, that's more like it. May you please soon outgrow those limits that do nothing to protect you, and also pass on this message. You're welcome. Three lies about sharks that humans have used to justify their own violence and alienation that sharks will no longer tolerate. Number one, sharks travel alone. Translation, cultivate your sharp individuality. Not so. The blacktip reef shark, for example, is highly social, finds safety in numbers. Community is the stronger approach. Number two, sharks are powerful and effective because they hide. Translation, no one will love you if they see all of who you are. Not so. For example, black-tip reef sharks jump out of the water and flip in the air four times even while hunting. You are fierce from every angle. Number three. Sharks spend more time sharpening their teeth than opening their gills. Do you need a translation here? Breathe. And an addendum from me. What even sharks tell you... Or, sorry. When even sharks tell you to give peace a chance, you know something has to change. And here are some things I am willing to give up. I'm offering toward our evolution. The sharpness of knowing who I am, the weapons I filled my mouth with on purpose, the ways I showed only the tip of me when you needed my wholeness the whole time, the lies I let live in my name, the ways I devalued my breathing. I love each of you for stretching your cartilage and opening your gills. Thank you for remembering the ancient rule of cycles that the sharks are still protecting. And what a celebration when we realize that our survival need not make us into monsters. When we forgive ourselves for shredding what could never even hurt us. When we evolve in our assignment of brave guardian vulnerability, we have wondered at the sharpness of teeth, glorified the extremes of alienation. We have fetishized exactly what we fear, and now we are here to notice the miracle that was there the entire time. The gills, the permeability of your strength. The gills, all the way, er, the gills, the way all life is flowing through you. Your breathing. It is your breathing that we need. <laughs>